Hey, welcome back to Intimate Interactions. Let's get back to discussing the ways we share love and intimacy with our fellow humans. Relationships, kink, polyamory, group sex, it's time to unlearn stigma and live our best lives as our best selves. All thanks to my amazing Patreon supporters. Intimate Interactions has no ads but this one. If you want to keep it that way, you can go to patreon.com slash victorsalmon. You get access to exclusive premium content like all of my coping with jealousy stuff. And hey, if that makes you jealous of my patrons, it sounds like it might be time to sign up. Free resources are available at victorsalmon.com slash resources, and book recommendations are at intimatepodcast.com forward slash books. Also, my Patreon supporters don't have to listen to this ad. Now, let's talk about the episode. Maddie is a men's coach living in Victoria who teaches healthy relationships between men. We talk about emotional labor, exercises you can do with your friends at home, strategies with intimate partners, socially acceptable ways men can share intimacy with other men, and we talk about the challenge of restoring intimacy between men if they've received gendered messages that have poisoned their relationships or disrupted them or have been in some way toxic to them. We hope you enjoy this session. It might be somewhat binary at times, but it is designed for people who identify as men, and I think gender nonconforming folks and non-binary folks who present as masculine or are curious about what masculine gender can mean for them, I think they could still get some use out of this content. Content warning, when talking about depression in men, suicide may come up. Please resource yourself appropriately. Enjoy! So I will welcome everyone to another session of Intimate Interactions. Maddie, I didn't think about how to introduce you. Would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah. Uh, my name is Maddie. Um, I, uh, I, I work with men and primarily cis men. And, um, and I've been doing that for, through, my own, through my own work, like my own explorations. And um, as well as uh, at this point in my life, it's, it's all of my work and my schooling is geared towards exploring masculinity and then, and um, yeah, and understanding it um, and then uh, creating opportunities to, to kind of like dismantle the things that aren't working and build up the things that are working. Um, and I'll, most of my work, is I would say, well, not even all of my work is informed by a variety of voices in my community, including, um, you know, men, trans folk, queer folk, um, people of color. Uh, I took indigenous studies and that really informs a lot of my work. Um, and so for me, it's important to, to, to just like come at this work from a variety of places and, um, yeah. And okay. yeah, that, that, that's me basically, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it sounds like there's a lot there to unpack. I really appreciate that you try and bring like a multiple perspective approach, um, and, try to inform your work from many different kinds of lived experiences. I think it's fair to say that the content we're discussing is probably going to be useful to a lot of folks, but especially useful to folks who either are cis men or who do work with cis men or who do emotional labor with cis men. Yeah, totally. So do you want to start out with um, offering your definition of toxic masculinity and then we can sort of talk about that a little? 
Yeah. Um, how would I define toxic masculinity? I, I, you know, it's their social patterns amongst men that are harmful, mm -hmm. uh, often to themselves and definitely to others. Um, that, like in its simplest form, is is what I is what I think people are talking about when they when they talk about toxic masculinity. Sure. Um, do you mind if I offer how I've sort of thought about it? Oh yeah, heck yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, yeah, when I think about toxic masculinity, I think specifically of like um, the gendered scripts we've been given and sort of our ideas and sort of images and concepts about what being a man is and what masculinity is and what being masculine means and how we're supposed to move through the world. And I think about all of those things and I think about the messages that are harmful, not just to um, non-men um, and children, um, but also the same messages that are harmful to men because I often find um, people often send or survivors in these conversations, which is extremely important. And yeah. also, it's important when doing work with someone who's, say, a perpetrator to center the perpetrator in that work, which isn't the same thing as to say it should be centered in the public eye, but just that there is value in teasing apart the things that are harmful to others. And often I find there's a lot of motivation on the side of people who perpetrate harm by talking about the way those same behaviors are really harmful to them yeah. as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That's so eloquent. Thank you. Really appreciate your thoughtfulness around that. Yeah. One of something that like, like uh, one of the ways I approach this, especially when I'm working with um, men is to, is to try and really break it down to like, to like really simplify things. Um, mm -hmm. and I often don't even use the term toxic masculinity. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that will, is a hard entry point for a lot of men. And it's kind of a sacrifice that I, sometimes I will make and then I will bring it in later, you know? Right. And I, I found that there's a, it can be a lot of reaction. Definitely. Like, to that, to that word. Even though I think it historically was actually comes from the men's movement. So I, I didn't actually know that. That's really cool. Mm -hmm. I read a post just recently from a friend that said it was actually developed within the mythopoetic men's movement um, originally, and it's been kind of taken up and adapted uh, in varying ways through through feminists. So sure. So yeah, and it's it's. I think it's valuable too to acknowledge that the ways that men are hurting in the way that men have been harmed by messages they've been given also tend to perpetrate themselves on others. I can see how that would have value to feminism. Absolutely. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. So how do you convince men to quote unquote buy out of toxic masculinity, especially if you're not using the term toxic masculinity? Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, what I, what I do is I, I have, um, I, like, particularly if I use the lens of uh, a group that I have called the Toolkit for Friendship, is that I, what I do is I try and get men to buy into relationship with each other. And then I use that, that, um, that like, arena where they're, where they're starting to connect um, 
as a conversation to look at like the, the socialized patterns or like the gender norms that are getting in the way of them having relationships. Right. Mm. And so I've found it to be effective, um, to get men to see that within themselves and within their relationships mm-hmm. and then to kind of tease that out and then, and then connect them into intimacy and connect them into what real connection feels like and what, um, and so, and I, I call it relational nutrients, right? Like, so I start by trying to like create uh, a group, you know, where they're getting relational nutrients. And then I'm like, this is what you have lost. This is what has been taken from you. Right. And then when they have that, when they have a taste of that, they're like, I want more of that. And then we, we start having that conversation of like, well, what happened here? You know, like, how did you, why did we, why did we, why are we doing these things? You know, why are we living in this way? You know, and that's, that's really embedded in us from, from a very early age, you know, mm-hmm. you know? and uh, there's, there's like lots of empirical evidence to show the harm that is happening through um, as you know, so, I mean, some will say in utero, but we know that from, from like the ages of like two, three, we're already starting to shape men's like emotional worlds. Right. Mm-hmm. Already starting to tell them that they're not as emotional as women, you know? Right. The, and empirical evidence shows that that's just not true. Right. If anything, little boys are more emotionally reactive than little girls, supposedly. Yeah, that's, that's actually what the empirical evidence says. It's not right. a, it's a huge margin, but it's like, it's... Ever so subtly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that is what it says, yeah. Interesting. That's really cool to know. So when we're talking about these relational nutrients, it's almost like talking about a man's need for intimacy or connection or community or love and support. Like all those vulnerable kind of intimacy needs not getting met, finally getting met. Exactly. Yeah. No. And, and like, uh, it's like when they start to meet that, like, that's where I'm like, okay, when they sort of have those needs met, they want, they usually want more of it. Right. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it scares people too, but, but usually they want more of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then it's easier to start having conversations about like, how do we impact people around us you know like right you know the toxic masculinity it doesn't just happen to men but it it also happens to um people out you know that aren't men so right like people in the world that men interact with be they men or other people exactly so right so that's interesting i've noticed in terms of getting needs for intimacy with men met what about the demographic of men that, that seem to find other men and they find community in their isolation and their loneliness? Um, what, what about that sort of piece that sort of is rooted more in not connecting well with women? I hesitate to use a term like misogyny because I agree that a lot of people will disconnect. Yeah. But like, how do you, how do you tackle that piece of, of sort of the objectification of women as having certain uses or purposes but for groups of men that are finding intimacy sometimes around that piece of not getting their needs met with women yeah that's 
so like they they have they're like wanting let me try and reiterate what you're saying just to make yes, sure please. you're hearing each other um like what um how, like how how do we navigate um men that kind of want uh to get their needs met from women and are really struggling to do that. And they're struggling to do that in isolation. Is that, am I hearing that correct? Um, sort of, or they're struggling to do that in, in, in community with other men who are mm -hmm. similarly isolated from women. So it's a group of men where no one's really connected to women talking about how they could become connected to women. I mean, it's challenging. I think that, <laughs> I think that, I think that men's work needs to be informed by women, the people that are being harmed by men's actions. And so um, I don't see any of it as disconnected. Like all of my work with men is connected in. And so I try and bring that in. Like I let people know that like, man, like this, this, this was created from the voices in my community, you know? And mm -hmm. so it is about like, I think that's one part education, right? Mm -hmm. um, to bring that in. To the, to the, our, into our conversations with other men. Mm -hmm. um, but that's like, like we, I think we have a lot of learning to do in that realm, right? Of like bringing women's voices. I mean, women, queer, trans folk, like, you know. Sure, non-men non essentially. What's that? Like non-cis men. Yeah, non-cis men. And so, so, you know, it's, yeah, yeah like, it, I think the one of the first steps for me, the way that I, I'm working anyways, is through um, is through starting to get them to work together with each other, right? And so, A, that's reducing the emotional labor that like... Other folks are doing. Yeah. So, so that's like key. And then B is like building that up between them. And then the pitfall is like, is if men just keep doing that work with each other, but don't take it outside of their relationships. And I've totally seen that within men's work where like, where men have great relationships with, they rebuild all this stuff with other men, they feel super safe and then they don't feel safe talking right. with other folks. So I see. So it's almost like step one is like helping isolated and depressed individuals restore um, and their, their understanding of their own emotional landscape and of accessing intimacy again through relationships and restoring relationship with other men. Is that right? It's, that's what it's about. It's about restoring relationship within ourselves, you know, within amongst men. And, and there's a lot of like, um, there's a lot of, um, you get a lot of data when you get a group of men together and you get them talking about these things. It's like, cause there's so much homophobia and there's so much fear. Like my first step is getting someone to step into circle with other men. Most men are, are terrified of that, you know, mm -hmm. like it, so it's a huge step. Like, and they don't even realize or understand that they're scared to be in a group of men. And like, that's how deep that fear is. Right. And so it's it, cause it's totally normalized. Right. And I, yeah. Right. And it's not even necessarily always homophobia mm, no not necessarily like it could just be fear of violence from other men and it could be that yeah. same sort of toxic masculine idea of what other men are going to be to you in your life yeah yeah and for me like you know i got into this work because i ran from men 
my whole life, you know, like, like I experienced the violence in my family, you know, I experienced mm. violence at my schools from a very early age. Mm-hmm. Um, and that went on all the way until high school. And then, and then I started to go, you know what? I need new friends. Like I need new people in my life. And I left my city. Mm. <laughs> I, le- I literally left my city to go find healthier relationships, uh, which I, I'm grateful that I arrived at that place. And not a lot of, not some folks never, they don't arrive at that place, you know, on their own. So when you say arrive at that place, you mean like deciding enough is enough. I need a change. I'm going to act and actually make a radical change. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I left like a, a culture that was like, you know, I lived in Alberta and it was pretty, you know, it was pretty intense as far as toxic masculinity goes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I came to BC where it was a little more chill, you know, and then I reorientated my social group so that it was like, so I was hanging out with men that were more loving and more caring, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So could you, I want to go back to what we were talking about in terms of emotional labor. Could you give like a brief definition of emotional labor? Mm. Yeah, so emotional labor is maybe, I guess, I don't know if I've ever thought about this out loud. Um, That's okay. I've been asked to like define it. So emotional labor, from, I would say, is um, anytime we're sharing, like, I mean, really, like, we're sharing our emotions with another person. Uh, where we're sharing vulnerability with another person. Um, and also receiving that as well, like assisting someone to process through their emotions is often and sometimes exhausting form of emotional labor. Absolutely. Yeah. So on both ends, right? Mm-hmm. And, so, and, um, and in, in, you know, in kind of like patriarchal, sit like social systems which is like everywhere it's it typically is like women carrying the burden of that you know um and and that's like and that we've been socialized and conditioned to often share with women not all men are but like a lot of men do that and so yeah i think there's this there's Sorry? this idea that like it's un- that men are unsafe and that would hold true, not just physically, um, but especially emotionally, especially for those of us who had fathers that weren't super in tune with their emotions. It would make sense that we're afraid of trying to process through feelings with men or that we don't have trust that men will have the strengths in, in doing the emotional labor to support us or the, the knowledge of how to parse apart emotions at all. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's like, if, if I bring this up in like conversation with other men, like I, I do a thing called witnessing and like when I introduce that and I go like, like, and then I do it, I literally do it, which witnessing is just literally like saying back some of the words that I've used instead of like adding in my judgments or adding in my narrative or trying to help me and fix me. When I do that and when other men witness that happened like another man repeating back to me what they've seen in my body and what they've heard uh, out of the words that I've said. Mm -hmm. And the men watching are often like, 
whoa, what the hell just happened? They're like, you didn't give any advice. You didn't uh, try and fix the problem. And for a lot of men, they've never experienced that, like literally not experienced that. So they stopped going to men. Right. Stop doing that. And like we, uh, I mean, I think most people would do that, right? Like if someone, it's like if you went to someone with a challenge and they just like, picked up their phone and started looking at it, you're not going to like, you're probably not going to reach out to them. Right. Right. Like, yeah. So it's, that, that's a big piece of it. And that's a part of changing, uh, uh, the culture in which men operate in. Right. Is like, we need to start listening to each other, you know, mm-hmm. like creating deep, meaningful connection, right. Getting those relational nutrients. Cause that's mm. part of what we're missing. So, Trying to, I just want to clarify what I heard um, about the witnessing exercise. So one man shares um, an experience or a problem or a challenge, and then a group of men observes them and then just offers what was observed. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to do. Most people really struggle with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like some, some people will like encourage like, uh, um, uh, like you to summarize what somebody said or to like interpret it, you know, um, or like to have empathy. And I actually think that those are skills that are, are actually very challenging for people who haven't been, been practicing those skills regularly. Mm-hmm. Like, they're really challenging skills. So the witnessing really breaks it down to the bare bones. And like, to me, that's ground zero. That's where we're starting is like at the, um, for the last two years, I've been meeting uh, with two other men and we practice that every week. We practice just witnessing each other. Wow. And over time, it's slowly developed into like reflections um, that have become a little bit more embellished but that's because we developed a relationship with each other and we know each other and we have um, like a context in relating, you know, mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. me go through like patterns in my life and they can say, Hey, you've done this before. You know, you've been here before you talked about this a long time ago. Right. But it all started in witnessing. And that's what we focused on probably for six months to a year before even those embellishments started. Right. Because we had a deep trust and deep connection built with each other. Um, yeah. I also noticed that even when you were talking about embellishments, they weren't directions on what to do. They were simply deeper observations saying like, ooh, I'm noticing a pattern. It's still like what someone's seeing. It's not so much like here's what you should do about it. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah, totally. Yeah. Cool. That's really awesome. I like the witnessing exercise a lot. Yeah, try, play around with it and see what you get out of it and let me know because it's kind of, uh, it's for me like a little playground and I, I've found it to be, to be, um, to have profound impacts in groups. Yeah, thank you so much for that gift. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as always, I'm always happy to collaborate with you. Yeah. So we're talking about um, emotional labor and I'm curious to ask um, if you have 
you know, it's so funny. You almost anticipate the questions of like where I'm going in the interview because the next question is like, how can men get stronger at emotional labor or self-improvement without relying on women or their intimate partners? And you basically answered that with a witnessing exercise. But if you have other words on it, feel free to share. Yeah, I think we mentioned earlier, I was like, the, just the talking about like the, um, I think it's important to name that it's not an, an extraction of like sharing from our partners or right. from the other people in our lives that aren't men. It's actually, I, if we're doing this work in the right way, it's going to be bringing us into relationship in a more vulnerable way, but in a way that we're owning and taking care of our emotional needs and worlds. And we're not doing that alone. We're doing that with other people. It's about interconnection, right? Right. We're getting the nourishment from, from interconnection, you know, mm-hmm. uh, then, then we're not going to be, we're not going to be as burdensome. Right. Totally. And um, I've really seen that shift in my life and, 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 and I would like, I wouldn't. Um, and so the, like, I think, we, I think these are like tangible shifts that can happen in our relationships that, that we actually will, will notice, you know, and that we can, and people will speak to them. People will give us feedback. They'll be like, wow, I've noticed something that's changed, you know. Right. Uh, or like, because it's like they're, you know, it, it really changes how we carry ourselves in the world when we start, be, when we start being in a relational way, you know when we start thinking about um, the emotional labor that other people are putting into a mutual interaction, we can start owning our percentage of that, whatever that might be. Absolutely. Yeah. And then we start noticing things like, Oh man, I'm not listening or like, or this isn't reciprocal or, or like I need to, like I, I notice when I need to give, you know, to give more of that, you know, and create space for that. And like, I've had to soften, um, and into that, you know, I've had to like really, really um, shift. Um, yeah. Like, yeah. I think it's really neat too how when men are in relationship with other men and they've sort of gotten past that step one and two, which is like restoring the relationship with oneself and then restoring the relationship amongst men. They're sort of in this place where they're participating in relationship, doing this emotional labor in concert with other men. Um, but then when they when they interact with women, sometimes perhaps they aren't quite as mindful. So it's not like they don't already have a point of reference as to what doing emotional labor can feel like. It might just be that they don't know how to navigate that with folks who aren't men. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And a a lot of it is like some of the big work we have to do is to unpack what those barriers are, right? Like is to unpack and like we can look at it through a gender lens if we want which is like a lot of our conversation is looking at it through the lens of like these gendered norms, but then just on a personal development level, right? Like right. We're, all, we're all kind of fucked up. Right. And like we have, so, you know, we, we have to like, we have to do that work, you know, that personal development work. Uh, I like to just call it relational work personally. Um, we have to do that so that it like, it um so that we can go into relationship and and have 
healthier patterns, right? Healthier ways of being. Because what, what I have access to through male culture currently is not a lot of skills that are relational, right? Right. And I think that most men would agree that they're not being feeling fulfilled in their relationships with other men, you know? Um, and probably oftentimes uh, with anyone in their lives. Yeah. I was very fortunate to sort of find the life hack that is non-monogamy and that it allowed me to not be overwhelming to folks with the amount of emotional labor I was asking of them. Um, and it also allowed me to get a lot more acquainted with doing emotional labor because in non-monogamy, when a person has, you know, a specific ask or a specific concern or an issue, um, it's fairly well documented, like what the, what the do's are and what the do nots are. So there's, there's almost like an informal guide as to how to learn to do relational work. Um, and I found that incredibly useful for me. Nice. Yeah. So how is that? How do you, how do you learn this informal guide? Like, how does that come up? Um, well, currently I'm working on a relationship course to teach some of those relational skills. Um, but there are lots of books. You can look at ways of doing non-monogamy. This is just non-monogamy specific, so it may not work for folks that are monogamous and listening. Um, but for me, um, just understanding like jealousy is probably one of the biggest topics that people like to talk about with non-monogamy. So there's this huge thing around jealousy and around people not doing emotional labor or not holding space for folks to talk about their jealousy. And then there's this this other perspective that that talks about like well who is it appropriate to unpack jealousy with and there are all of these discussions in and around emotional labor that aren't calling it emotional labor but it's exactly what it is totally yeah yeah absolutely that makes sense yeah and we start to see it everywhere right and like a big part of it is boundaries right mm. our boundaries in relationship and yeah. I, I like to think of boundaries as a way of like uh moving our our um energy you know it's like like how we allocate our energy our resources right our time our energy yeah no exactly and and like and so um finding and, and i think there's a lot of things that affect that right like there's uh power imbalances mm -hmm. people, you know um, I've, I've encountered some resistance when I talk about um, power imbalances. I had someone uh, cite Jordan Peterson a while back being like, it's not always about power. And I was who, like, I, you say it was Jordan Peterson. I, I think it was Jordan Peterson who said like, it's not always about power. And I was like, okay, but a lot of the time it is. <laughs> makes sense from Jordan Peterson's perspective. Sure. I don't think he's that much into that. Uh, um, Right, exploring these things from the perspective of power. Yeah, yeah. Like he's, I think he's kind of, isn't he kind of, his sentiments are a, a little uh, angsty when it comes to those. I think uh, so too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, like power can be, you know, I like to, when I introduce that into, um, let's say like my toolkit for friendship group, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I get them to, to look at where they don't have power in their lives, right? Like, right. Like I where think that's, power, right. that's class. Maybe that's, um, maybe that's at school, like between your teachers, you know? Like, mm -hmm. 
you know, I kind of like, I try and get them to name where they don't have power in their lives. And then, cause we all like, there's always areas. Right. And then, and then we can start to like, look at the, like a lot of some of the bigger, broader pictures, like around race and sex, and gender and all of those things, you know? Yeah, I like the idea of making the starting point, like where don't you have power in your life? Because I think it's easier for folks to identify, even if they're like, I don't feel like I have any power when I talk to women. That's at least a starting point. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, you know, sometimes that will be uh, that example specifically, I get a lot from men. Mm -hmm. Of not feeling like they have power with women. Yeah. And, but like, if you go into that more, it's like, that was probably like a lot of the time they had, you know, relationships with women in their lives where they experienced violence. Right. Um, And usually from an adult. Right. So, so they've, they see it as something that's with women, but it's, it's actually likely a lot of the, sometimes it's actually more about like an inappropriate relationship um, with an adult, right? When they were, you know, when they were a kid or a teenager, they had a relationship with an adult that maybe um, where the adult really laid down the law in terms of power or authority. And that that sort of translated to maybe they may have had reinforcing experiences like abusive relationships in adulthood, like that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Or like, like even, um, emotional labor wise, like there's, there, I mean, there's lots of, uh, uh, like kind of psycho psychological things. Uh, um, uh, I think there's even, there's even some phrases for it, um, that, that show that like, so like particularly like, um, single mothers sometimes when they don't have other people to share their feelings with, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. or, or they don't have, a lot of um, outlets in their lives. And, you know, like oftentimes it can be a struggle for single mothers, right? And they might like share that with their kids, right? And that's inappropriate. It's like a kid can't handle that, right? And so they grow up feeling like there's an imbalance between them and women, right? Right, because they had all of this responsibility or all of this, like all these needs put on them to be the parent when they were the child. Absolutely. Exactly. Right. And so, so this is like where things, I think like there's all these intersecting pieces, right. And they often, um, we have to like, we have to, um, flush out the nuances within that. Right. And so I feel like that's a big part of my work with men is starting to understand all of those intersecting pieces. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. That's yeah, awesome. Yeah, that can be a barrier to for them relating to women, you know, or relating to anyone really that they perceive as feminine or women. Sure. Yeah. Any kind of abuse can definitely fuck with a man's yeah. abil- ability to share intimacy. I'm I'm curious about some of the socially acceptable ways that men do get to share intimacy with other men. Yeah. Yeah. We're we were kind of talking about that. And I mean it's yeah, we were talking about football. Right. Like, I hear this from like sports guys, you know, it's like, they're like slapping each other's butts in the locker room, you know, it's, they're like, so it's, 
Love it's, so, it's so interesting that you would pick football as an example um, to bring up earlier when we were talking about this. Yeah, I think it's just like one that's there, you know, that's like just really obvious to me, you know. It's like, also it's also considered like a pretty manly sport. Yeah, yeah, it's a very manly sport. And so it's got this like parallel, like intimacy, camaraderie, you know, yeah, you're conquering struggle together you're facing off against opponents and you're all sort of united against them and that gives you a sense of i think intimacy with other men absolutely i know like there's a lot like written about like war and how that shapes men and like brings them together mm -hmm. uh, sometimes trauma is a bonding thing there's like intimacy in that there's i think there's also like that intimacy you get when you witness someone experience a trial yeah. Like with BDSM, a lot of the time, there's great intimacy in that hero's journey, which is a, a common trope in narratives you see in Star Wars and other narratives as well. Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings. It's the idea that you can sort of leave home, conquer this struggle and come back renewed, wizened and, and able to better help your community. I love, I love that you're using the hero's journey for SNM. That's great. Well, oh, definitely. I think the hero's journey, like the monomyth as it's called, is is a really appropriate analogy for submission and masochism specifically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think there's a lot of intimacy in that, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, I was actually talking... Yeah. And, this, and this is the part of the podcast where we get to hear um, Maddie eating. That's fantastic. Oh, yeah, I, got, I was like, I'm so hungry. Take oh. care of yourself. Take care of yourself. Um, and I'm going to talk with my mouth full too. <laughs> okay. It reminds me of my mother. Fuck social norms. <laughs> um, so I was talking to uh, a while ago, but the um, idea that like within um, there's this like in the same way that like I go to men's groups and share with people, there's like this culture of safety created mm -hmm. and there's things that I can rely upon to know that there's, that there's safe, there's like safe conditions. And I would say within BDS and M right. There's, it's similar, right? Mm -hmm. Things and so for I was I was actually noticing I was like within the context of like play and BDS and M I was like I feel super safe you know right I was like but outside of that I was like I don't feel safe I was like I need to know that these things are in place in order to feel safe right that's what's so fascinating about BDSM and kink in general, I think is that you have to do so much negotiation and there has to be all this groundwork for safety because what you're attempting is potentially so catastrophically dangerous. Yeah. And That's it's like, it's like through attempting those things in ways that are loving, wholesome and supportive, you, you sort of develop this framework for safety and this, feeling of comfort and safety with these people who sort of become um, in sociology, I think it's called fictive kin. It's this idea of found family. That's cool. I like that. Yeah. I've never heard that term before. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's one of those like big fancy words that just means like the people you find that you rely on as much as you would biological family, if it were healthy and functional. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you create a culture, right? Yeah. Well, I think a big part of what we're trying to do is create a culture <laughs> that, mm-hmm. that like if in, in the same way, what if we what if we just treated our relationships like that? Like, you know, we had the same kinds of like, you know, agreements and things in place that, that like we're in our culture that created that safety between us. Like we'd have to care enough about the other person. Right. And to some, and to some extent, I'm glad you touched on culture. I feel like culture is just in, just like um, embedded in sport. Like there is typically a culture on every team and sort of a coach that oversees it, but there's also like a general culture among folks who enjoy sports. I remember um, this, I was typically seen as a wuss when I played football, which is understandable. Um, (laughs) um, But I was on the line and I remember at one point during practice, our quarterback threw me the ball during practice, even though I was on the other team, just so he could tackle me as hard as he, as he could. And I remember just like squaring off with him, running straight towards him, deking at the last minute, and then just like going into this huge hit and feeling totally like I was really afraid before the hit in some respects, but like afterwards when we got up, he respected me. And that's sort of what I wanted to touch on in terms of that hero's journey or in terms of that, that sense that as men, we get to go through these trials that are really difficult that we've all done once and they get progressively easier. And sort of when you get to witness someone doing that for the first time, it, it's a bonding experience. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so that, that was my experience with football. One of them. Yeah, and I, you know, I, we could go outside of the realm of football and try and think of other, you know, other areas. Like, where do you experience intimacy? I mean, it sounds like maybe BDSM. Yeah, kink is definitely an area I experience intimacy. I would, I would say, I would say, in some senses, I feel really polished in my topping now, so it's not quite as intimate, but it's still intimate. And I think especially with regular partners, because like for me, just doing BDSM with any old person isn't necessarily going to be intimate. Mm -hmm. There are sort of ways that it is in the same way that like sex is sort of always intimate, but it isn't necessarily if you don't have an existing relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of that piece of like, ultimately it comes back to relationships. It comes back to, you know, experiences may be really amazing, but they're intimate when they're shared. It's the same kind of device, I suppose, that I, I feel intimate in my non-monogamy. I feel intimate just in any individual relationships I have where we're vulnerable and trusting with each other. And I guess that's the ticket, right? It's like, how do you teach folks the skills they need to safely be vulnerable, yeah. even, just, even just with themselves? I often say that when people are like super judgmental or like they're really struggling with like, wow, these, these people are all terrible or like people are terrible. Those people carry that judgment around and apply it to themselves 24-7. So when I'm frustrated by having to deal with a person that I feel like is really judgmental for me, I try and remind myself that, you know, I dealt with them for like five minutes or an hour and they have to deal with themselves 24 hours a day. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, I think a key thing you touched on there too is like safety, right? Mm. So, um, you know, we're, I often talk about how what we're actually doing is changing our brains changing our neurology right mm-hmm. neuroception right and so like i never felt safe with men ever right right 
I learned to run from men and I learned how to protect myself. And I, I, I didn't like act out in like an aggressive way. I didn't make myself try to make myself bigger, you know? Right, which, which some men do and is like a really normal reaction to dealing with masculinity. Yeah, and I, like years ago in, group, in a group, I remember being, I remember making the statement that like, I think that as a whole culture that we fear men. And I think it's for a good, like, I think, you know, we have pretty, you know, shitty track record, right? And some of the guys in the, most, half of the group was like, yeah, totally, I get that. I'm scared of men. And they were like, I've been running from men my whole life. And the other guys were like, no fucking way, man. I'm not scared of men. No way. And I was like shocked. Right. All about it afterwards. And I was like, oh, so some of us like run and fucking hide, you know, and avoid violence, like at no cost. And Which other, I do. Yeah. And likewise, I don't anymore, but I used to. Yeah. Uh, other people inflate themselves, right? And they right. become this like grandiose, uh, Terrence Real talks about it, you know, like we become these like grandiose caricatures because it's like they, you want to be top out in the hierarchy of men, right? And like, so one way is to blow ourselves up and create fear so that people will stay away from us or mm-hmm. like it stops us from having intimate connections, right? Because it's not safe to have mm-hmm. intimate connections with men. Mm-hmm. And then the other way is to like be like, leave that and be like, no, I can't have intimate connections with men. So I'm just going to like avoid them. Right. So, right. So it's kind of like two sides of the coin, right? Sure. Yeah. Of the running from that challenge versus becoming that challenge itself. Almost like the notion of like, Oh, well, if other men are going to be scary and like, you know, potentially violent to those weaker, I'll just be just as strong as those other men, if not stronger. Yeah, exactly. And, and like, and it plays into like the one-upping culture that that is like a pretty predominant thing within male culture, right? Sure, and I and it doesn't have to be violent. I was just using that as like one example, but I completely see what you mean about like the one-upping culture of like consistently keeping each other on our toes and like to some extent I can see the positives of that of like encouraging each other to grow. And again, if you're in a culture or a community of men where that's like um, an expectation or a safe thing to do, or the same thing we were touching on with communities and safety earlier with BDSM, but once you have those those ground that groundwork for safety established, then the one up in culture can just be like, oh, they're spurring me on to be my very best self. And that would be like in, you know, like you'd be like consenting with each other in that, you know. <laughs> yeah, I got an example. Like, I used to try surfing, and dudes would just rip you apart, like. It was like so macho and right. I, I was like, I, I don't love surfing enough to do this. Right. And then I would go into uh, climbing and you, you'd be out climbing with a bunch of guys and everybody's just pumping each other up. Right. Right. You're kind of in competition with yourself. Everybody's lifting each other up Two totally different things. Right. Or like I'm a, quite a competitive person. I play squash and we lift each other up, but we're competing, you know? Right. But if, but we're competing. I'm not, I'm not really trying to like, I love the state of competition, but I don't need to crush somebody, you know, like that's not really fun. Yeah. Like I want to see myself get better, but for me, it's always been healthier not to focus on winning or losing, but to focus on like, how's my progress. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
when we take that into say connection with each other as men that um what happens is like and i'll often hear this like in a in a men's group it'll be like like some people some people call it like war stories people just start telling stories like in response to like i'll say something vulnerable and then people will be like yeah you know like this one time this long list of like things that they um that they've been doing in their lives to make it better and like all of these things you know and like and it can be i think i think that can also be a part of that like one-upping right instead of being relationship with each other and like really slowing down and like witnessing each other and reflecting and like working on relational skills we're just actually talking about ourselves right instead of being in relationship with that person so, so it becomes like a competition of importance or a competition of focus in yeah, the conversation. Yeah, totally. Value, importance. Like, who, who can take up more space almost. Totally. Like, look at me. I'm so more personally developed, you know? <laughs> I like that one. No, no. I mean, I find myself, I have to stop. And I, like when I say all these things, I like to include that, like, I still struggle with all of these things that I talk about, right? Right. They are embedded in me, you know, like they're, and so like, like it's, it's a long, long journey and road of teasing this shit out. Right. Like I often tell folks that there's no finish line. It's not about like, yeah, no, getting there and being done. It's like, just, just be mindful that like, it's always going to be there and be chill and calm about it. But like, also keep an eye on it. Cause like being, being like vigilant and mindful of its importance. Yeah. But if there is a finish line, I'm going to be the first one there. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I, I definitely don't feel that way. Like personally, like I feel like, holy shit. Sometimes when I'm talking with other folks, they may not be as invested in like the resource materials. They may not be, they may not be outworking me and they may just like not be starting from the same place. And I just try and remember that everyone's got their own journey and their own sort of road. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, we're at different points in that road, right? No. Totally. And I think that's something too, like that I that I've been sitting with a lot and kind of working on some development around, like really identifying where people are at um, in terms of what they can take up. Mm. For some guys, like when they're doing this this um, you know exploration work. You know, they, they, they might be at a place where they're really into personal development, right? And they're like seeking out like leadership things or they're seeking out like, I want to make my life better, you know? Some guys are like, they just don't know. They have no context. Or I always say uh, they have no reference point for, say, connection or for intimacy. So they're just in that place like where they need to experience that intimacy and that connection. Mm-hmm. Some folks are in a place where they're like, want to learn. They're like, I'm, I'm feeling like there's something not working here, but I don't understand it. And they want to intellectually understand, you know? Um, right. Well, so, there's, like, there's a whole trauma piece around like integration of right and left, left hemispheres of the brain. And like, there's all the EMDR therapy and there's all this like stuff around. Sorry, I, I interrupted you. Um, carry on. Um, and so, 
there's, I think something that's really important is for us to start identifying like um, and articulating those stages. And there's some stuff like, you know, like there's like the stages of change and I think in psychotherapy and stuff that are, can help with that. But like starting to identify like where are we at in these stages? Because one is I, I will push dudes away from me if I'm, I'm wanting to do work with them and I, I start trying to like get them to feel stuff, but their nervous system is totally like, mm. like dysregulated. They're not, they're going to get scared away. Right. And so right. if I can put them in like a leadership program, like, like a men's leadership program or something like, like a lot of the time they don't come back. Right. Right. They got too overwhelmed and they need, they needed to feel safer and they needed to like, do this like slow build right and so and then some some people are just like willing to dive into those things you know so i think you're right is that we're all kind of at a different place right mm-hmm. there's uh, there's that um there's a not a meme but a tool i got in counseling that talks about like the pyramid of regulation and how it's like you regulate first and then once you're regulated you relate and once you relate really well like functional in relationships, then you can reason and really like, but until you can access um, regulation, it's really hard to reason. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and that's cool. I really like that. I want to hear more about that too. Um, but it makes me think too of um, how, oh shit, I lost my train of thought. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. That happens. Um, uh, That's okay. I, I can I can talk more about regulation until yeah, you. Know, I like that like, pyramid of regulation. It's it's super useful because there's like the momentary pyramid, which is like I'm currently experiencing like a fight or flight or freeze response or fawn. Um, we don't have to go into the the four Fs right right now, but I'm currently experiencing like that traumatic flighty or fighty kind of or freezy feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not regulated, so I can't really be in a relationship, right? Like I can have the conversation. I can't talk to my partner respectfully. Like I'm not in a place where I have the bandwidth for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And it also means I can't reason about the situation. I'm really angry about, let's say, um, someone being wasteful with Windex, like a totally inane, useless thing. But for some reason, I'm really upset about it. And I can't reason my way out of it because I'm so dysregulated. So there's like the momentary, I'm not regulated. And then I can't relate and I can't reason. But then there's also kind of like the pyramid more long form over your life. If I'm usually dysregulated, I won't be able to have effective relationships. And if I don't have effective relationships, I won't be able to direct my life in a way that feels very reasoned. Yeah, exactly. And so if you're a three-year-old child that gets told that you don't feel as much as other people as you know, half of the population, right? Right. What do you think is going to happen? It's like, we're going to become pretty damn dysregulated if we aren't sharing what's going on with our lives, you know, if right. we're ourselves, you know, and, and so, you know, a lot of the time, like my work is actually teaching men how to regulate. Right. It's like the first step. Right. And so, like that is, so it's exactly what you're saying, right? It's like, it's like we have, like we have to be regulated. It's like, it's, it's really important to, to operate from that place. Yeah. Uh, and, if and, we, and I just want to be clear for folks 
I just want to be clear for folks listening that when we talk about regulation, we're talking about stress regulation. There's this whole window of tolerance jazz where we talk about how stressed or activated is my brain right now. In psychology, they use the term arousal um, to talk about how like aroused or activated your brain state is. But in situations where you're hyper aroused or you're hyper active, um, wow, I'm channeling space balls right now. Um, you're, you're right up out of the window of tolerance into this intolerable state of hyperactivation where you experience anxiety. And if you eventually burn yourself out with that anxiety, you can crash right down through the window of tolerance into hypoarousal mm-hmm. or hypoactivation where you tend to experience depression. Yeah. No, especially, especially if you get stuck outside of that window. And typically that's what we're talking about when we talk about regulation. We're talking about self-regulating around stress and activation. Mm-hmm. And like emotional regulation is a huge part of that, right? Is mm-hmm. being like we have to, so like a big part is like building up our capacity to feel things, to be in feelings, you know, not even necessarily to do anything with them, just to be in them. And like, and be regulated in those feelings, right? Like, can I do anger in a regulated way? Mm. Like, some people are like, no, you can't do anger. And I'm like, what? I can, I can be angry and I can be regulated and I can do it in a safe way, right? Yeah. And, and I think work. all those words are critical. Like, it's so important that when we do anger, especially in a society that tends to associate angry men with violence, that we do it in a way that's regulated, that we do it in a way that feels safe. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yes to everything you're saying. And a lot of, I've countless times heard men say that I don't want to feel my anger because I'm scared of what will come out of me. Cause I don't like, I don't want to hurt people, you know, right. they, they know they don't have the words for it necessarily, but they're, they're articulating that they're dysregulated and they're going to like blow out. Right. They're going to rage. And so, so it's like, like a lot of uh, folks stuff that down for that, for that reason. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's, and it's definitely, I mean, that's one of the bigger themes than working with men, right. Is, is like navigating anger. So it's uh um, and so the thing that I was going to say earlier that I had lost off my um, mind was about um, how um, the, because oh, you started this out by talking about um, the pyramid of regulation, right? Mm-hmm. And then, um, oh yeah, and, and so the access points is like about finding those different um uh, i lost it again oh (laughs) we were talking about um the window of tolerance and we were talking about um this pyramid of regulation yeah is any of that ringing any bells i i keep losing it for some reason i'm sorry this is just how my brain works sometimes that's okay um we can always record another one of these two because we are coming up on um, we've sort of got another five minutes left and then I want to sort of cut you loose so you can get ready for your appointment and all that jazz. Oh, and it's fine too. I'm, I'm happy, uh, you know, uh, flailing. (laughs) That's a part of life. And, um, you know, and, and that's, that's the way it rolls sometimes. So it may come back to me. I I appreciate that acceptance of imperfection and like how valuable it is not to hold ourselves to an unrealistic standard. Yeah, exactly. A hundred percent. Right. Like I, you know, 
we're, we're not always on and we're not always 100%. So um, and I certainly am, am not anyways. So, um, but uh, this is like the, I, I think a lot of what's going on um, now around regulation is, I think it's amazing because it, it actually gets us out of our heads and into our bodies. And so right. I start off everything that I do with men uh, doing like observation of our bodies and like, mm -hmm. and then practicing like regulating techniques. And I get them to reflect in the beginning of the session and the end of the session, whether it's one-on-one -on -one or whether it's group work. And then over time, they build up uh, uh, like an uh, like a landscape, right? I, I always say an emotional landscape or a somatic landscape of yeah. uh, what's going on inside of them. And for some men, I've gotten feedback. They're like, I've never ever stopped to take inventory of what's going on in my body, you know? Right. Um, and like these are really like basic skills that kids should be getting taught, you know? I completely agree. And like, it's a real baseline, baseline skills. So I've, I also wasn't taught any of that as a boy and going to see a therapist, like a counselor who taught me somatic therapy and who, by which I mean, did somatic therapy with me. Mm -hmm. Oh, that was, that was huge for me. Just being able to ask myself what I was feeling in my body, where I was feeling it, whether I'm feeling weight on my throat, whether I'm feeling weight or constriction around my chest, whether I feel like I can't breathe well, if I'm feeling like tightness in my sides or in my stomach, like all of these various sensations or even just like heat and energy in my fists, which is typically how anger feels for me. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. just there's, there is that sort of map or that landscape of your emotions on your body. And the more mindful you are of that, like the better you can tease apart and have emotional awareness of yourself. You can like preempt situations. You can, it's your emotional intelligence, I think is what um, Daniel Goleman calls it. Absolutely. Yeah. And how has that impacted your life? It's like super positively. It's helped me control anxiety. It's helped me regulate better so that even if I'm feeling depressed, I can sort of notice like, oh, wow. Um, let me just think for a sec. If I'm feeling depression, it can feel like um, it can feel like sludge, almost like I move a little bit slower. It can feel like a lack of hope, like I just feel hopelessness. Mm -hmm. And nice. I, tend, I tend to feel that like a weight on my chest. Mm -hmm. um, I yeah. tend to feel, I tend to feel it sometimes when I think about saying something like constriction around my throat, like it really tends to feel like my whole body is trying to prevent me from acting. Yeah. And, and so when you bring your attention to that, what happens afterwards? Even just being aware of it. It gives me, it sort of informs what I'm going to do about it. it. It helps me understand like, cool, there's this really intense weight on my chest that I can't move. And I can sort of think about what that weight represents. And like, I can think about how hopeless I'm feeling about career or about relationships. It just like, it kind of draws my attention to the needs of my body. And then I can think about like, okay, well, how can I offer myself what I need? How can I give myself some reassurance or some comfort? Like even just reminding myself I'm not going to be alone forever or reminding myself like I will eventually get a job. It's not actually the end of the world. I'm not going to, 
I'm not actually going to literally starve to death on the streets of Vancouver, although sometimes it feels like that. Um, that's just, you know, my stress response trying to keep me safe. And I can sort of thank it for trying to keep me safe and then do my best to remind myself I'm going to be okay. And then when I've sort of connected with my almost inner child, as it were, that kid inside me that's like screaming and going, you're not safe right now, then I can sort of like let it know it's been acknowledged and then I can redirect its attention to something self-care related, like going to take a bath or doing a brief meditation or going and getting some, some sun or going to a tanning salon if it's going to be in winter because light helps me a lot with my depression or even just going for a run, doing some basic 20 minutes of exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it allows you to start moving towards the things to get those needs met. But, yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. I noticed in group the other day, uh, and we were doing a check-in with our bodies, and I was leading it, and I got them to start first. And the I had noted what I was feeling in my body, which was like tension in my stomach and my chest, and I was like having some uh, like anxiety about the group going well and like some, mm-hmm. and like, you know, just everything running smoothly and, you know, losing my, uh, my train of thought in the middle of conversation. And, uh, and, you know, and then by the time I witnessed everybody share their check-in about what they were bringing in, in their bodies, right. Mm-hmm. My observation of myself was different. And I went, whoa, I feel more relaxed in my belly and I feel more open in my chest and I feel more confident. And that took like about 10 minutes. And it, and it was from, from the vulnerability in which other men were sharing there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was like seeing them share their vulnerabilities, put me at ease, right? Mm. And, so, and that's like when we start to get into co-regulation and like neuroception, right? Right. And this is why I really fir- firmly believe that we need to be doing this work in relationship to each other, right? Right. To not just heal ourselves, but to heal our sense of relationships. And actually, this is where I'm going to come back to my train of thought, is that when it's really quite a natural process, from, like I find a lot of, folks that I work with will be very self-consumed in their own world and their own struggles. Mm. And then what happens is after they start building up some capacity, they naturally start to ask about other people and they naturally start to go, Oh, maybe my actions have hurt other people. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe I don't like, maybe I need to take some responsibility and then they start stepping into responsibility. Right. Right. And then what I find is after that, they start to go into like, they often want to like give back, you know, they often want to like go out in their communities and share that knowledge with other men, you know, and, right. and people so that they can help them as well. And I, I've seen that as a pretty natural progression as far as like a pyramid of change goes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that uh, the stages of changes go through that as well. And, and so, and that's been my experience is that like, so for me, sometimes I, I like, work with men that have done some pretty shitty things and I just have to like work with them for a while, you know, like I have to be in that with them and, and then slowly bring them to a place of starting to look at the impacts they have on the people around them. Right. 
Mm-hmm. And then how do you change that and transform that and then and in restore relationship, you know, um, if it's possible. Um, and I think, you know, we had talked about accountability before and, and like, and like, that's a, like a big, a huge part of accountability work is, right. is, is going through those stages and then starting to look at like, how do we, how do I restore relationship? You know, how do I, um, how do I make the changes? So I'm not like continuing to have this impact, but also like, um, can I be in good relationship with, with the people that I've harmed, which you may or may not be able to be, right. but, um, but can I restore some of that, you know, in my, in my network of care, you know, mm-hmm. um, by changing the culture that's around us. Uh, I mean, that would be an ideal ending place, like a, an ideal goal. You know? <laughs> to, to get to the point where we're really serving community again. Heck Yeah. I like that. That is a great place to end off for the day. Super duper. I feel like we just talked about all the things and we kind of came full circle back to community from the work we do in ourselves. Maddie, Mm -hmm. thank you so much for um, having this conversation and being willing to engage on these topics. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to do this. Awesome. We'll have to do it again sometime. Yeah. Yeah, we will. Yay. Yay. So how did you like it, Intimates? Leave your comments on facebook.com slash intimate interactions or directly on patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. Both communities are easy to find from intimatepodcast.com. So what are you waiting for? Go join the free Intimates community and start connecting with others. I'll see you on there. Disclaimer. I apologize if I said something that hit a nerve or played off a hateful idea or stereotype. I'm open to being called in. Chances are, in six months, I'll look back aghast and see something problematic I've since grown from. I'm certainly not perfect, but I am trying to be mindful of the voices I lift up and the perspectives I encourage. You can email feedback to podcast at victorsalmon.com. Thanks for your kindness. Attribution. The tracks I use are published under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The intro track was Lost Souls by Portrayal, and the outro track was Restoration by Uncle Milk. Land acknowledgement. I apologize first for any pronunciations I might butcher. I wanted to acknowledge that I recorded this podcast on the unceded traditional Coast Salish territories of the Musqueam, Kwantlen, Stazuminus, Stolo, Sawasan, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Shout out to the Sekwepmek Nation, on whose land I got my degree, considering the Kamloops Indian Residential School closed only in 1996 when I was 10, I have found nothing but unending patience and kindness in the Tekemloopste Sekwepmek folks with whom I've interacted. Let's never forget genocide in the hope we don't make the same dehumanizing, cruel mistakes again. Thank you.